Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Hello, Brett here. Before we get to today's show, got a quick favor to ask of you. If you've been enjoying the Art of Manliness podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps us out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you so much. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member you would think would get something out of it. Word of mouth is the primary way the Art of Manliness grows and spreads. So please share. Text a friend, send an email, do whatever, however you communicate. Tell them to check out a particular episode if you think they'd get something out of it. Thank you for continued support. And now on to the show. This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Proper Cloth. Proper Cloth is the leader in men's custom shirts. If you need a new dress shirt, you need to check them out. At propercloth.com, ordering a custom made-to-measure suit has never been easier. Create your custom shirt size by answering 10 easy questions, and then you can customize it however you want. Shirts start at $80 and are delivered in just two weeks. For premium quality, perfect-fitting shirts, visit propercloth.com manliness and use gift code manliness to get $20 off your first custom shirt today. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Recent surveys have shown that rates of anxiety are up, especially among young people. What's going on? And if you're someone of any age who struggles with anxiety, what can you do about it? Those are just a few of the questions I asked my guest today. His name is Kevin Ashworth, and he's the clinical director at the Northwest Anxiety Institute. Today on the show, Kevin and I discuss the difference between regular old worrying and anxiety disorders, the ill effects of anxiety, and its causes. Kevin then explains some of the different ways anxiety manifests itself in men and women, and some of the theories out there as to why it's been on the uptick in recent years. We end our conversation with some research-backed ways to get a handle on your anxious feelings. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash anxiety. And Kevin joins me now via clearcast.io. All right, Kevin Ashworth. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So you're a psychologist. I read about you in the New York Times because you also are the director of the Northwest Anxiety Institute, and that's based in Oregon, correct? That's right. We're in Portland, Oregon. I'm actually a licensed professional counselor and the clinical director of Northwest Anxiety Institute. So what got you into like focusing on clients or patients or people, individuals who have anxiety problems? You know, my, my interest in psychology, you know, I, I kind of got there by, I don't want to say by mistake, but I initially started working with adjudicated youth, realizing I need graduate training. Once I got into grad school, I met a professor that he really was an anxiety guru. He had published on anxiety and, and really taught me how to do exposure therapy, which is the, the kind of work that I do. It's a type of cognitive behavioral therapy. 
And since meeting him and, and reflecting on my own life, I realized that I was a much more anxious kid than I thought I was. And I, I really saw this passion of working with people that, one, you could actually help get better. Anxiety is very, very treatable. And do it from with a type of therapy that is very hands-on, very matter-of-fact. And, and I love the idea of helping people build tolerance to distress versus helping them just layer their life with extra coping skills, which we already know how to do. So let's talk about what what is an anxiety disorder? Because I think all of us have experienced worry at some point. When does yeah. when does worry transition to like okay, this is actually an anxiety disorder? Good question. It, we look at two things. We look at impairment and distress. You're right. We all worry, and we should. If there's anything that's important in our lives, you know, we have some some interest or some investment in anything, whether that's going on a date or you know having a job interview or passing a class or whatever it is we should have some anticipatory concern that we're going to do well. And that's pretty, pretty standard. It becomes problematic when that level of worry or that level of anxiety stops you from functioning. And that doesn't mean complete functioning, like you're not going to work or anything like that, but you're not in, enjoying work because you're, you know, you can't focus on your daily tasks because you're constantly living in the future. You're anticipating every worst case scenario, or you're having panic attacks where you start really questioning whether you should leave your house when, especially in this day and age, when you can order everything to your home, it becomes really easy to avoid. So the difference between angst and general concern and worry versus an anxiety disorder is we're looking at like pathological levels of, of distress and impairment. And can individuals be anxious about certain types of things, like maybe, but like not others? Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons I love doing this work is I work with really, really intelligent, logical, high functioning individuals that are anxious about the strangest things. And that's partly why they're so anxious is because they've got such an awesome brain that allows them to think about stuff too much. And so I can be obsessed with this irrational fear of contracting AIDS, let's say from walking down the street or that I'm going to be judged at an interview for a podcast and then have absolutely no concern about public speaking or no concern about skydiving or any other kind of normal or, or abnormal or extreme life events or behavior. So anxious individual or a warrior do not necessarily worry about everything. Gotcha. And besides, I mean, you've, you've talked about what, what constitutes an anxiety disorder. Like you, you worry to the point where it impairs you in some way. I mean, besides the impairment where your work isn't going great or whatever, how else can anxiety debilitate people? The, the, the number one way that most people try and cope with their anxiety is through avoidance. And so this is probably the most clear sign that, that individuals are starting to suffer from anxiety. Ultimately, I ask people, are you making decisions throughout your day based on preference or fear? And avoidance doesn't have to be, you know, extreme avoidance. It's, it's really insidious. It could be it could be the difference between sitting at a coffee shop facing the wall or not. And if you do that based on, I don't want people to notice me because I'm sitting alone and that makes me worried. Now you're making a decision based on fear. Or it could be, you know, the student that's not going to school because they're, and, and avoidance shows us that they're anxious, but we don't know yet why. That could be because of the school, that the grades, the academics. That could be because of the public speaking component. That could be because of the social component. But avoidance is for sure the, the best way to identify anxiety in individuals. And, and do people with anxiety disorders often try to self-medicate in detrimental ways? 
Yeah, well, anxiety is a lot about just not wanting to feel bad. And so this comes back to that question about how do you make your decisions? You know, I enjoy whiskey. I enjoy bourbon a lot. And there's a big difference if I get off work and have a bourbon versus if I feel bad, I have a bourbon. Now, the difference is, is one's developing a functional relationship. And so every time I have a drink, I feel less anxious. Now my brain is learning pretty quickly that that's really helpful. And so whether it's that or I smoke a joint or I do any other kind of substance, I quickly, my brain quickly learns that I actually feel less bad and I don't have to tolerate these worrisome thoughts or these awful physical symptoms. And so my goal is helping people enjoy whatever recreational substance you may enjoy. And of course, that's not my role is to judge people on how they make decisions, but it's more of what's the relationship you have with that. But we know pretty quickly that, you know, alcohol is a depressant. So anxiety is about being too activated. So it helps. Marijuana, on the other hand, can make people actually more anxious because you're messing with your physiology in ways that you're not quite sure how. Alcohol is pretty consistent in how it does that. I'm curious, you know, with, you mentioned depression. The research has shown there is a, there's a genetic component to it. It's something that's inheritable and that you might have a tendency yeah. or temperament towards depression. Is it the same thing with anxiety? Are some people more prone to having anxiety disorders? Yes, absolutely. And, and again, it's similar to depression in that we don't exactly know why or how much, but we know there's genetic loading. We know that anxious parents typically have some anxious children. And again, it's hard to pair out there. Is that because they've kind of modeled anxious behaviors? But there is definitely more of a, a vulnerability to the reactivity of, of thinking too much and worrying too much and also being just sensitive to your physiological reactivity. I'm a pretty, I'm pretty sensitive to my body. You know, my stomach hurts or my heart skips a beat. I'm aware of it. Where my wife, for example, I think she just thinks less or cares less about those things because she's just not wired that way. And so if I start behaving very differently because of my changes in my body or anxious thoughts, then I can quite quickly develop an anxiety issue. And besides that, you just mentioned that there could be an environmental component. So maybe you grew up around anxious parents and you caught that vibe from them. And that's, you learned how, that's how you cope with life is just by worrying about it excessively. Yeah. And, and so the story I tell people is when I was in graduate school, I had never had a panic attack before, but I got stuck in an elevator and I never thought I was claustrophobic or particularly an anxious individual. So this is an environmental stimulus. I got stuck in an elevator. My body just said, no way, dude, get me out of here. I felt extremely anxious, felt like I was panicking, got out of the elevator, of course. That's the process of classical conditioning. My brain pairs this neutral stimulus of the elevator with this feared stimulus and they become wetted. When I left class that day, I walked up to the elevator and my brain triggered that same response without me even getting on. So I took the stairs, which is avoidance. That's how an anxiety disorder is born. I start making decisions based on a feeling and there may or may not have been a genetic loading there or not for any individual. But if you make those decisions based on feeling bad, you can quickly get in that loop. So there's been recent research, and I've been reading articles about this this past few years, is that anxiety disorders are on the rise, particularly amongst young people, like teenagers and young 20-somethings. Have you noticed that in your own practice? And, and what do you think's going on there? Yeah, I, there's a few things I think to account for that. One is we are just getting better at having conversations about what anxiety is. 
you know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, you know, we called it things like nervous breakdowns and, and uh, we had different names for it. And our diagnostic criteria has gotten better for kind of understanding it. So that definitely has a component, I would say. But we are also parenting shifted in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, with the baby boomers having children, they started parenting quite differently. And, and I think a big component is we went away from helping teach children how to tolerate distress and we started helping them really to soothe. And I think the job of parents went from child raising to basically how successful my, my kiddo is as a reflection of how I am as a parent. So parents started doing everything for kids. So now we've got kids in their 20s who parents have been the ones that registered them for college. And they're the ones that probably still do their laundry. And they're the ones that when they feel distressed, bail them out. And so over time, you really reduce your tolerance for feeling bad. And I think that has a huge component. So yeah, so the kids today haven't exercised that muscle of tolerance, right? Yeah, exactly. I'm curious. You mentioned depression. Are is anxiety often linked with depression, or can you be anxious and not depressed, or do you often see them the two come together? We do see them together a lot. There's a high uh, we call comorbidity rate between anxiety and depression, but uh, there's there's plenty of individuals that suffer from an anxiety disorder and are not depressed. You know, the age old chicken or egg question becomes with this, but anxiety is very, very prevalent. And we're talking, you know, 25 plus in in childhood percentage. That's a lot of people. And if you've ever experienced distress or or intense anxiety, you feel pretty hopeless. And that often turns into a feeling of demoralization, which looks just like depression. And the question that the test, the litmus test that I asked my clients is, if your anxiety disappeared tonight, no more worry, no more panic attacks, no more obsessive thoughts. Would you still feel depressed? And they often say no, they don't think so. But the truth is, is if their depression went away, would you still be anxious and have obsessive thoughts and panic attacks? And the answer is yes. So we know there's plenty of people that suffer from depression that don't have an anxiety disorder. And there's plenty of people that are anxious that aren't depressed. But I think often depression is misdiagnosed when anxiety is the cause. So this is the Art of Manliness podcast. Most of our audience are men. And I, and I know we've had guests on the podcast talking about depression, how depression often manifests itself differently in men than in yeah. women. That's why it's often hard to find. So I guess uh, men, when they're depressed, they'll often get angry. You know, they're not, they don't look sad. They right. act angry. I'm curious, is there another, is there something similar with anxiety? Do men express anxiety differently than women? Yeah, men are, men are very good at avoiding and, and emotionally that looks like just shutting down. Right. And so if I distract phones, video games, magazines, bars, alcohol, whatever it is, the gym, right. If I pour my attention into something else, I'm trying to relieve any kind of distress that I have related to anxiety. So the difference is, is, you know, we know the rates of anxiety are higher in women, but that's most likely because women are reporting it more. Yeah, it's just we culturally, it's just it's safer for women to say, hey, I'm suffering from anxiety. It's really hard for for guys to admit that because it is really owned as a sense of like weakness or, or vulnerability is not good or not to talk about it. And I see a lot of men in my practice that has taken them, you know, some serious work and time just to even call in and, and make the, make the initial intake appointment. So, but you're right, you know, things like agitation, when I see angry or agitated men, usually there's anxiety beneath there that they haven't ever processed or haven't really ever been able to even identify. And if I can say a little bit more, I think, you know, many times what I, what I tell people is most of us remember the first time we ever saw our dads cry. 
and if ever. And the fact that that's like a pivotal event that you can remember speaks to how poorly our culture <laughs> allows men to express emotion. That's not the first time your dad was sad. <laughs> I can promise you that. But usually that's either done behind closed doors or they have learned very quickly, like don't express sadness. So as we grow up with, as men, we have never really been modeled how to manage negative emotion. We know how to behave when we're happy or surprised or excited, but now we have no practice or modeling on what to do with these really hard feelings. And I think that's a big component of why guys then express that in other ways. So let's get into um, sort of the specifics of the faulty thinking that goes on with anxiety problems. So you mentioned when you have an anxiety problem, you're making decisions based on fear. That fear must be irrational. So how what happens in our brain to like kickstart that irrational thinking where you, you mentioned the elevator thing, like, okay, you got right. stuck in an elevator, then you started avoiding elevators because you thought next time I get in the elevator, I'm going to get stuck again. Well, that's irrational. So, right. so like, what, what goes on that sort of perpetuates that, that faulty thinking? Yeah. You know, our brain is, our brain is developed and it's evolved over time to, to make sure that we're alive, to make sure that we're safe. And so when there's anything that is potentially even dangerous, our brain wants us to, to protect ourselves. So to give a non, non-anxiety example, most of us have experienced food poisoning And what happens after we've had food poisoning is most of us stop eating that thing that got us sick, right? Despite logic and knowledge, knowing that, hey, I've had an egg salad sandwich 600 times in my life, the chances of me getting sick from another one is pretty minimal. But your brain prevents you from having any more, whether that's with a disgust factor or whether that's, it's irrational if you use logic. Anxiety works the same way. So when we're, when we experience distress, one thing that we do is look for meaning and sometimes it's not there. But we start making association connections with things that are scary. So our brain then through this process of classical conditioning and negative reinforcement works really hard to make us feel better. And then we associate whatever we've done in that time with feeling better and we avoid everything else. So it's, it's this fight or flight response. Anxiety is, a, is um, the, the anticipation of something bad happening but it's not actually dangerous, right? We don't use the, we don't use vocabulary related to anxiety for actually dangerous events. People don't get T-boned, you know, in a crosswalk and say, I was hit by the car and I went into a panic attack or, you know, I was really scared with the explosion that occurred and I had all these intrusive thoughts. These are actually dangerous events that people don't even use words to describe like anxiety. But if you anticipate driving and that you may get in an accident at some point, the feelings associated with that, the brain says, Hey, you're feeling bad about that. You should probably shouldn't do it. And so they are irrational. They don't, they don't make logical sense, but we make a lot of emotional based decisions. Like if I feel bad, then it must be true. Does that make sense? We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Quality is an important aspect of our lives, including our underwear. We want underwear that feels good, provides support, doesn't chafe or ride up, and that we don't throw out every couple of months because it's made out of shoddy material. That's what Saks Underwear is all about. Saks has taken something we all need and has made it better, and it's the only men's underwear that's actually designed with our anatomy in mind. Saks, first off, is made with comfortable material. It's moisture-wicking, breathable, and it's got their custom ballpark pouch, which does exactly what you think it says it would do. just keeps everything nice and separate down there, so no more friction, no more chafing, super comfort. If you want to try out Saks, check out their Quest. Super comfortable, nice and cool, super lightweight, great for travel. National Geographic, in fact, named it its travel boxer brief of the year. If you want to try Saks at a discount, got an offer for you. Go to Saks Underwear. 
manliness.com and you got to use promo code manliness and you're going to save $5, get $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase. Again, it's a limited time offer for my podcast listeners, saxunderwear.com, promo code manliness to get $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase. Again, that's saxunderwear, S-A-X-X, underwear.com, promo code manliness. Also by LegalZoom. Attorneys are expensive. You're likely to pay around $300 an hour. That's just one reason why smart business owners turn to LegalZoom. Over 2 million Americans have used LegalZoom to start their businesses with LLCs and corporation and more. But even after your business is set up, LegalZoom can still help. Things like lease agreements, changing tax laws, and contract reviews are all part of running your own business. But these are precisely the kind of legal hurdles that take time and effort away from growing your business. With LegalZoom's business legal plan, you get legal advice for your business from vetted independent attorneys and tax professionals available in every state. You also receive access to NDAs, lease agreements, and more. The best part is you won't be charged by the hour since LegalZoom isn't a law firm. Instead, you just pay one low upfront price. Check out LegalZoom's business legal plan at LegalZoom.com now. Get special savings when you enter manliness at checkout. Again, if you're a small business owner, you need legal advice. Go to LegalZoom.com, promo code manliness at checkout to get special savings. LegalZoom, where life meets legal. And now back to the show. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And and I, another thing I've seen in my own life when it comes to sort of like wor- at least with worrying, is you make these these conclusions that that are illogical, right? But the the reason the way you get there and the way it makes sense is you make small steps, right? I remember when I was in law school, I had every time I took an exam, it was I felt oh my gosh, I failed that exam. Since I failed that exam, I'm not going to get on law review. And if I'm not going to get on law review, it means I'm not going to get an internship. And if I don't get an internship, I'm not going to have a job and I'm going to be unemployed and have all this law school debt, which, you know, th- that conclusion is illogical, but it made sense because I, I made these like small little incremental steps there. Yeah. We, and we call that, you know, catastrophic thinking, right? Like you're worried about one exam that may or may not impact your future and your brain is helping you get there. And for sometimes that's really rewarding. So if that makes you then study harder for your next exam, you're, there's many processes there that are going to reinforce that behavior. Like, look, I actually don't feel distressed after I studied really, really hard. So that's good for me. The problem is, is people that worry like that, often they worry like that over everything. They worry like that over their exams. They worry like that over their friendships you know, Johnny hasn't called me back. What's up with Johnny? Why hasn't he called me back? That's weird. I wonder if it's, oh man, you know, I, I guess I didn't respond to his message last time. I wonder if he's not talking to me. And we can go all the way down that catastrophic until we bump into Johnny and he's like, hey, what's up, man? I haven't heard from you. And we're like, oh yeah, right. You hadn't thought twice about this. And so we can do that with finances. We can do that with romantic relationships. And that follows a pattern of what we would call generalized anxiety disorder, which is a successive worry about things that you actually don't have any control over in the moment. And what do you, what can you do if you, I mean, first you have to recognize that you're experiencing this faulty thinking, but what do you do once you recognize Are there's actions you can take to like stop it in its tracks? Helping people change the way that they, helping people get better from anxiety is, is analogous to managing one's health. It is not a coping skill that I can say, you know, if you do X, Y, Z, you're going to feel better. That would be like saying, you know, every time you feel fat, do a push-up. <laughs> you might help right there. You'll probably distract yourself from your thought of being overweight. But, you know, being healthy physically is 100 decisions a day, you know, from fries to a salad to, to you know, walking down the stairs versus taking the elevator. And that's the same with anxiety. So we have to help people change their relationship with their thoughts. It's not about trying to push their thoughts away. It's not about trying to disagree with their thoughts. In fact, if you've ever had an anxious thought, 
and you try and push it away, you know that thing just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's why lots of people struggle to fall asleep at night with their worry is they just they've distracted themselves all day. And then once they lay down, they're hit with all these thoughts that they just don't have the cognitive resources to keep away anymore. So the strategy that takes time is, I think, kind of having this dance with your anxious thoughts and actually agreeing with them. And so when my brain tells me something that's scary, like, you know, hey, Kevin, something might happen to your daughter today. I don't know that that's true or not. It's a very irrational thought. But if I tell myself, no, she's safe, she's home, she's probably with my wife, they're probably driving safely, that actually reinforces that I should be concerned. If I'm a little bit more provocative with those thoughts and I say things like, yep, yep, something might happen to her today, I'm really just kind of saying this thought carries no weight. It's like how you, it's like how you teach kids to manage someone that's teasing you or bullying you. So there's some some cognitive behavioral therapy things you can do like that. But you mentioned at the beginning that your your approach, and I guess I mean maybe the research says this is the best way is is, is exposure therapy. So correct. Tell us what exposure therapy is exactly, and what does the research say about that when it comes to anxiety? Yeah. So so exposure is known to be the gold standard treatment, and that's that's both looking at the National Institute of Mental Health. And exposure is a type of cognitive behavioral therapy, and essentially what it is, it's helping people move towards the things that are scary to demonstrate in real time that the worries, the end, that the potential threat doesn't actually exist. So how do we know there's actually no danger? If I have a thought right now that, you know, in your studio, there's 10 people behind you listening to me, mocking me right now, right? If I think that that's going to make me pretty anxious, although I don't know that to be true exposure. So the best way to manage that would be to change the way that I'm speaking be very careful about what I say, or in fact, just hang up would be the best way to protect myself. But to manage that thought an exposure thought would be to say, yeah, well, I hope that they are. I hope that they are. And I'm just going to be myself because what happens is the anxiety kind of builds. And then once there's no actual danger, it resolves itself. So to give a very concrete example, if someone is scared of dogs, which is a very basic example, you can't be better You can't be more comfortable about being around dogs or know that you're not going to be bit every time you're around a dog by avoiding dogs, turning off commercials with dogs, not watching movies with dogs. And you can't buy a coping skill with a a long stick that you can pet a dog from afar. What we would do with that individual is depending on their level of fear is we would help them be around dogs until their body relaxes. So that fight or flight system, that brain system that we talked about before, we activate it on purpose. So we say, let's get a dog. Let's activate that. And then let's just sit here. And what happens is your brain goes fight or fight, fight or flight, fight or flight, danger, danger. Oh, nothing's happening. Let's turn off this system, which turns on this parasympathetic nervous system and relaxes an individual or calms them from their distressed state. And then the brain learns very quickly that I don't have to respond with anxiety when I'm around the stimuli. And it doesn't matter if it's a dog or anything else because I'm not actually in danger. Now, If the dog walks in and I leave every single time, I'm actually proving to my brain that is potentially dangerous. I haven't been bit because I haven't been around a dog. Well, that's true. And so that becomes, that's why avoidance works so well for people because they're, even though they're enduring the distress, nothing bad is happening, but they have no tolerance now for managing it. And how long does exposure therapy take? Does it just depend on the person? Is it different? Yeah, it really depends on the person. Some things like phobias, um, phobias, we actually have a lot of success in treating in one day. And so I've treated individuals with fear of heights, fear of needles, 
what are some of the other fears that, but we, there's a, there's a protocol that is a six hour prolonged exposure protocol that has been proven to be very effective. And so you're essentially just recreating the feared stimulus over and over and over until the brain says, Oh yeah, that's true. I got this. And, but for most people they're in therapy about, it depends. They have about 16 to 20 weeks. We have at Northwest Anxiety, we have an intensive outpatient program. And so we have a three-week program where people come three hours a day, every day for three weeks, well, five days a week. And that's very effective because it's not, therapy is not set. The way that we do therapy is I don't need you to go home and just experience life to come back and have a chat about it. You know, if you're here for a specific anxiety issue, whether I see you every day in a row or not, we need to work on that issue. So the frequency is really, really important. What about like more, not a phobia, but say you're a college student and you're just anxious about failing out of college or you're, you're out in the job market and you're anxious about not being able to find a job and it's just causing you a lot of anxiety because it's not, you're not able to pay the bills. How does exposure therapy work for things like that? Yeah, typically exposure then becomes a conversation about what you can control. So those kind of anxieties usually load on uncertainty, Right. Most people would be actually okay if they had the cert- even if they had the certainty, you're not going to get a job with the degree that you got, and you know that now 100%, then they can shift their focus. Or you may, but, but that I don't know if I'm going to, or I don't know if I'm going to be successful is a normal anxiety response. But exposure then is about helping people learn to tolerate that feeling of uncertainty. And so sometimes we're just looking at, you know, what's realistic, how much of you know, you graduating college and, and looking for a job, can you actually control, right? There's only so much of looking for a job you can control. You can, you know, prepare your resume, print it out, and apply to jobs. Other than that, there's very little. You can network, you can do lots of things. But anxious individuals worry far past that. And part of the issue is anxiety is a very future-oriented problem. So even when people that are anxious are in the middle of a job interview, they're focused on failing it or they're focused on the next interview or what if I don't make it to the second round of interviews, which disallows them to be present and actually successful at doing well in that, that interview. And so the goal is helping them be present at the same time. And sometimes we can do exposures around just things that are uncertain. Things like I, we ask people to do things like see a movie that you've never seen a preview for or eat at a restaurant that you haven't read the Yelp review. People require certainty so much that are anxious that they won't eat anywhere unless they've asked 10 people or read 10 things about something or they know exactly what the food is and they don't do spontaneous things. So for those kind of things, developing exposures around being spontaneous, managing uncertainty can be really helpful. Yeah, that reminds me, I heard about this guy, he did a TED talk about he, he called it rejection therapy, where he, mm. he just went and asked people just ludicrous things because he was just super, he was super high strung. Right. So he'd ask people things like, he forced himself to ask, like he went to a burger restaurant and asked for a burger refill. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, you would a soda refill and yeah. he got rejected most of the time, but he learned that, oh, nothing, nothing really bad happened. Right. And that's exactly what I do with our clients that have social anxiety, right? I'm going to do something that's going to make me look so foolish. So if I walk around and I have people ask questions like that or ask them, you know, there's a big stadium here where the Portland Timbers play and we'll walk around out front there and I'll have people ask strangers, excuse me, uh, where do the Timbers play? And people will go right there. After about five or six times of doing that, they don't care anymore. And if you can tolerate that, then you can have small talk with the person on the train in the morning. If you can ask the person on the train 20 questions in the morning, now when you sit in your first freshman class in college, 
it's pretty easy to lean over and say what's up. Yeah, yeah. And uh, does so is this this exposure therapy towards more towards generalized anxiety? Does it transfer over? I mean, so say like you 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 get a handle on uncertainty in social situations. Does that transfer over to being able to handle uncertainty in say the job market, or do you have to like actually be specific about? Handling no, it really does translate over because actually the content, so whether it's, you know, social situations or job market or whatever it is, or, or, you know, a dog, the content is different, but the process is the same. And so we care less about the content, you know, people that come to therapy care a lot about the content, of course, but the process is helping you feel bad and tolerate it anyway. So if I know that I can manage this awful feeling of distress and it actually goes away and I get some mastery with that a lot of confidence comes from that. And so now if I go and apply to a job and I get the job, and now of course there's lots of things that are anxiety provoking deadlines and things like that. I now trust that I can tolerate my own distress. And so it really does translate well into other areas. All right. So it's all about, again, exposing yourself, letting that, I guess, what do we call it? Resilience muscle to to grow with inside you. I know we have a lot of parents who listen to the show. What if you're a parent and you notice your kid has a tendency to be anxious. What what can parents do to help their kids manage that or or you know confront that and and reduce that anxiety? Yeah, I would say one of the things that parents do the most with great intention but becomes really problematic is they they feel bad that their kids are struggling. They feel bad that their kids are anxious. And when they feel bad, now they're working on managing their own stuff by helping their kids. It becomes less about the kids. And so some of the earliest signs that we know kids are anxious is there's often a lot of reassurance seeking. And that looks like things like asking the same question over and over because they're looking for that certainty, even though it doesn't exist. And so helping parents learn that not answering those reassurance questions or not accommodating the anxiety. And so what's really helpful is helping parents identify what decisions are my kids making based on anxiety? And then how am I accommodating those anxieties? So, you know, obviously a big issue for anxious kids is not going to school. And parents work really, really hard to make sure their kids are comfortable. And so when kids don't have to go to school and they get, you know, work brought home or they're online or they're doing these different things, they may feel better in the moment, but they're not building that resilience muscle. They're not building that tolerance over time. And so, and then parents realize that they're doing everything to manage their kids' anxiety. They're checking in with their kids. Have you eaten? Are you up on time? Are you okay? Do you need anything? And they're really working hard to make sure the kids never feel distressed and they have to feel distressed. And so some of the most helpful things parents can do is actually dial back a lot of the accommodations that they're making for their kids' anxiety, not for their kids. We want parents to make every accommodation they can for their kids. They're lovely, I'm sure, but not for their kids' anxiety. And so that just maintains the anxiety over time. So that looks like, so if your kid's asking you for reassurance, you just, what do you do to say, well, I'm, we're not, I'm not going there. What do you, what do you, what does that yeah, look like? Yeah, I would say, hey, that sounds like, that sounds like something your anxiety wants me to say. I've already answered that. It's not that you're not giving information. And so, you know, if a kid says, you know, I got invited over to Sarah's house tonight. Do you know who's going to be there? No, honey, I don't, I don't know who's going to be there. Mom, do you know who's going to be there? I've already answered that. I feel like that's an anxiety thought that wants to answer that. Because now what you're saying is, I hear you and I validate that you have a concern, but 
I'm just going to let you sit there and tolerate that. But what many parents will do is they'll say, well, I don't know. Let's find out. And they'll call and they'll ask, call Sarah's mom and they'll figure out who's there. And now this kid is not learning how to develop any of those skills of tolerating. I guess I'll just have to figure out who's there when I show up. Because in, in the truth is finding out who's there or not actually doesn't change whether the person's going to go or not. It just changes their level of distress walking into the situation. And we want them to be confident walking in, not knowing. Right. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like the internet can just exacerbate that. Cause you know, if your kid has a worry, you know, you can answer, oh like, my goodness. let me check Google yeah. on my phone here really quick. And here's an answer. Oh, for all you. day long. Google is the Google is very, very challenging for anxious individuals because now we can look up everything, you know, from a physical ailment to a question of, you know, infidelity to any kind of worry. We ask Google. Yeah. And just, <laughs> and then, yeah, we've all, everyone's been down that route of, you know, checking oh, yeah. WebMD and I have yeah, a pain in yeah. my, pain in my arm and now I have cancer. And, yep. <laughs> right. So don't, exactly. Don't go down that path. Well, well, Kevin, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your work? Yeah. So I have a YouTube channel and it's under Fighting Fear with Kevin Ashworth. We have a website. It's nwanxiety.com. And people are certain actually welcome to send me an email at Kevin at nwnorthwestanxiety.com. So Kevin at nwanxiety.com. And we're in the process. Our website's up. We're in the process of getting our new website redesigned. It should be launched here by the end of the month. And then uh, check out the YouTube channel. And I have some blogs on the website. Fantastic. Well, Kevin Ashworth, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks so much. My guest today was Kevin Ashworth. He's the clinical director of the Northwest Anxiety Institute. You can find more information about his work at nwanxiety.com. Also check out his YouTube channel, Fighting Fear with Kevin Ashworth, where he's got lots of videos on some of the things we've talked about and goes more in depth. Again, Fighting Fear with Kevin Ashworth. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash anxiety, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.